And welcome back to our continuing special coverage. This is new video that we have just been getting into CNN special counsels. That's Jack Smith getting lunch at Subway. <laughs> really? That's what you got? CNN Subway. Indict fresh. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Oh, brother. I got the feeling that something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I hope Jack Smith's sandwich was delicious. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast that's heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another delicious episode (laughs) Of the Bradcast. Uh, hey, uh, here's some uh, emails. This is uh, Cynthia somewhere in, from somewhere in California. I think San Luis Obispo, if I recall correctly. Cynthia writes in to me via bradcast at bradblog.com. Following yesterday's program concerning the disqualification or the idea that we should disqualify Donald Trump from next year's presidential ballot as per the insurrection disqualification clause of the U.S. Constitution. That would be Section 3 of the 14th Amendment uh, and on the climate crisis that more than once yesterday derailed our discussion (laughs) as it does about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment on yesterday's show. Yes. Hi, Desi Doyne. Hi. I'm still laughing about Jack Smith breaking news, going to get a sandwich. Well, CNN is on top of things, (laughs) you know. Uh, Also, uh, so is cheese, mustard, and some chipotle mayo. (laughs) Yes. Anyway, stop derailing me already, Desi, (laughs) because you're going to like this email. So from Cynthia writes to say, quote, Desi is right. Oh, yeah, yes. See? Thank you, Cynthia. I appreciate that. <sighs> Remove Trump from the ballot, she says. Hold that bastard accountable. <laughs> Follow the Constitution. Do it even if Biden has to face a better authoritarian candidate. It is the right thing to do, she says. And uh, for fun, 
She is also distracted by the climate crisis. She says, for fun, I have been trying to reduce my own carbon footprint as best as I can. It has really taken a huge bite out of my 401k retirement savings, but I have put 20 solar panels on my roof and added battery backup. Guess what? She writes, it works. Good. She says, I wish I had the room on my mini house for more solar panels and could afford at least one more battery. But as it stands on normal, not hotter than hell days, my system can completely power my house and send some nice, clean energy back to the grid. On hotter than hell days, she asks, adds, uh, my house just bakes and I have to run my air conditioner, which can keep my solar panels from fully charging my battery and my battery can be drained well before midnight, putting me back on PG&E for my power. The downside for me, Cynthia writes, is that I'm unlikely to live long enough to break even on the cost of my system. Well, I mm. hope that's not true, Cynthia. Uh, she says, but if nothing else, I am hoping that my investment in solar energy for my home will make a difference in combating climate change, even if it is only a minuscule, tiny one. But then, she says, a lot of tiny differences can add up. And again, I felt it was the right thing to do. Best, Cynthia. Good job, Cynthia. And yes, it may feel like a small thing, but the ocean is just a lot of drops of water. So, And, you know, if our uh, listeners are just going to all be, you know, doing the right thing just because it's <laughs> the right thing to do, it's outrageous. But, hey, good for us and good yes. for you, Cynthia. Thanks for the, uh, for the note. Todd from Petaluma, California, writes to say, Brad... Being that election integrity and a fair, completely inclusive electoral process are core parts of my political advocacy, guests like yours yesterday, that would be Alexandra Flores Quilty, the campaign director at uh, the good government group freespeechforpeople.org, provided me with crucial understanding that no others will or dare to spell out in vital detail. This is on our discussion of, yes, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which you will find actually makes its way into today's show as well, a little bit later. Anyway, Todd writes, thank you uh, for that show. And I, uh, well, you're most welcome, Todd. You, yes. uh, he says, uh, you always provide key insiders that not only know what the hidden underbelly of Republo fascism looks like, uh, looks like close up, you give them the time to support and expand on their observations. MSNBC won't do that. They won't. This is true. Just ask our friend Mark Joseph Stern, legal journalist, Slate.com, who finally shows up there every now and again on MSNBC. But they let him answer like two questions before sending him on his way. And they're missing out on so much. Correct. <laughs> Their loss, obviously. Anyway, uh, oh, uh, he, Todd adds, uh, kudos to you and Desi for another home run. And I'm going to post an analysis of the 14.3, that's Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, using quotes from yesterday's show in an article on Daily Coast. Standing strong for a truly inclusive America, Todd in Petaluma, California. Awesome. Thank you, Todd. Yes. 
So uh, with that news out of the way, we've got a few Trump accountability items to try and make <laughs> sense of today Just as as all of the remaining indictments in Jack Smith's federal special counsel probe of January 6th and Team Trump's various attempts to steal the 2020 election while profiting off of their fake claims at the same time, by the way. Uh, and Fonnie Willis's Fulton County, Georgia district attorney probe of the Team Trump conspiracy to steal the election in the Peach State. All of that seems to now be coming down within the next few days and weeks, even as Trump's already filed 71 criminal felony charges. That would be 34 in New York, 37 at the federal level in Jack Smith's stolen documents indictment, even as those are moving ahead at the same time. So keeping track of where each case is and uh, which is which may not be easy, particularly when new cases sort of come out of nowhere, as one of them did today. But we'll get to that in a moment. Actually, before we get to all of that, there was kind of this mind-blowing piece from Israel's Haaretz newspaper today that seems worth sharing. <laughs> Antiquities belonging to Israel have been kept for the past several months at former U.S. President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate, and senior Israeli figures have unsuccessfully tried to have them returned to Israel. Among the antiquities are ancient ceramic candles, which are part of Israel's National Treasures Collection. They were sent to the U.S. in 2019 with the approval of then-director of the Israel Antiquities Authority on the condition that they be returned within weeks. Yet almost four years later, they have yet to be returned. Mm, that's a problem. Israel clay lamps intended for a brief exhibition in Washington, D.C. in 2019 got stranded in the U.S. due to the pandemic. They were found at Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. It isn't clear precisely how the antiquities ended up at Mar-a-Lago. And according to the paper, it is unclear whether Trump himself is aware that the items are on the premises of his estate. Okay. Yeah, he's aware. He's, <laughs> he just doesn't care. He has said many times, falsely, that the Presidential Records Act allows him to take anything he wants from the White House upon leaving office. The uh, Presidential Records Act, in fact, says the opposite of that. Nonetheless, it is clear that he believes that anything he could fit into his grubby little moving van uh, was his to keep. On the way out of the White House, even ancient Israeli antiquities, apparently, because there is no rule of law that Donald Trump is not willing to violate. Nobody's property that he won't claim as his own if he can get away with it. That apparently under the uh, U.S. Finders Keepers Act. The mine. It's all mine act. Something that every toddler is familiar with. Anyway, with that in mind... <laughs> Uh, let's start here. Lawyers for former President Donald Trump and prosecutors sparred in court on Tuesday over when his landmark criminal trial concerning his theft and unlawful retention of classified documents under the Espionage Act and related crimes should begin. 
But the federal judge, a Trump appointee who has not recused herself from the case for some reason, put off an immediate decision in this case about documents that were stored at Mar-a-Lago, perhaps next to the Israeli antiquities. Judge Eileen Cannon said she would issue a written order after the nearly two-hour hearing in federal court in Fort Pierce, Florida, where lawyers for Trump pressed for an indefinite delay of a uh, of a trial date, and federal prosecutors argued for a start date in December of this year. Trump's lawyers argue the former president cannot get a fair trial ahead of the 2024 election. Uh, in which he is seeking to reclaim the White House, why he would be able to get a uh, fairer uh, trial after the election is not clear. In any event, obviously, they want to delay the trial as long as possible. So in the event that Trump wins, he can simply pardon himself for this federal crime. Not that federal prosecutors made that argument, but it should be obvious to everyone by now. Uh, They did point out that the case is not a complex one. There is no need for a lengthy delay in the start of the trial. Prosecutor David Harbach told the judge, uh, Judge Cannon, that Trump's legal team has repeatedly suggested he should somehow be treated differently because he's running for president. Quote, he should be treated like everyone else, Harbach said. (laughs) Well, of course. Uh, Otherwise, anyone who was, you know, facing a trial for any crime could just announce they're running for president, couldn't they? It was the first time arguments were held in front of Cannon in this particular unprecedented federal prosecution of the former president. Trump chose not to be there on Tuesday so that he could travel to Iowa to tape a town hall with Sean Hannity for Fox News. His co-defendant, however, his valet, Walt Nauta, did attend the hearing in an earlier phase of this case prior to the indictment. But after the uh, uh, the uh, search warrant was executed at Mar-a-Lago for these stolen documents, Judge Cannon's rulings were completely overturned and dismissed by the very conservative 11th Circuit Court of Appeal. So we will see how she does Uh, Now that this case is underway proper, Anna Bauer, who writes for the Lawfare blog, she was in the courtroom. She reported after the hearing on Twitter, quote, as Judge Eileen Cannon made her debut at a hearing in the classified documents case, she appeared disinclined to grant the special counsel's request for a December trial date. But she added uh, she also seemed skeptical of Trump and Nauta's bid to delay the trial until after the 2024 election. So uh, maybe she will end up splitting the baby there, whatever that means. Of course, after we get out of December, we get right into the primary season. So if this is delayed uh, to some extent, it will be right in the middle of the uh, primary elections next year. Uh, Her ruling, Cannon's ruling on the actual trial date on the matter will be issued, she said, quote, soon. Hmm. So that's that case. Now, let's head briefly uh, to the north up to Georgia from there. Recently, Donald Trump filed a sort of desperate plea with the Georgia State Supreme Court, frantically hoping to stop his pending indictment. He's not even indicted there yet, but his pending indictment in that state in the Fonnie Willis conspiracy probe of his attempt 
to strong-arm state uh, officials into stealing the 2020 election on his behalf, most famously remembered by his recorded phone call to the Secretary of State, threatening him with legal action and begging him to, quote, find the 11,780 votes needed to steal the election from Biden at the time. Well, in Trump's Hail Mary filing with the Georgia Supremes, uh, he argued that the special grand jury that presumably recommended his indictment some months ago acted improperly in some way, and the prosecutor should be compelled to recuse herself from the case because she was biased against him. Somewhat ironic after talking about the uh, Florida case (laughs) being presided over by a judge that Donald Trump himself had appointed. But anyway, uh, as you recall, the Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis had convened what is called a special grand jury in Atlanta. Under Georgia law, special grand juries have only the power to advise to make recommendations for or against indictments, not to actually uh, vote on bringing indictments themselves. Willis is free to then take their advice or ignore it. But in either case, if she wishes to indict, she still has to bring the matter to a regular grand jury, present her case and the evidence to them, which is what Fonnie Willis is believed to be doing right now with the decision to come from the grand jury within the next few days or weeks, most likely at some point in August, as best as we can tell. But things are moving quite quickly now. So on Trump's preemptive attempt to stop an indictment before it is even issued and to remove Willis from the case on the basis that she is biased against him or something, well, the Georgia Supreme Court ruled on Monday unanimously against Donald Trump. Our friend Keith Barber, retired attorney and Daily Coast contributor who writes under the name Keith D.B. at Daily Coast, he uh, gives us a uh, helpful, simplified, to-the-point summary of the court's ruling uh, on Monday. He writes, the Georgia Supreme Court dismisses for two reasons. One, procedurally, the request is premature. The lower courts go first. So, in other words, Trump filed straight to the state Supreme Court rather than, like anyone else, filing, fi- filing his challenge in a lower court and then working his way up to the Supremes If and when a record has been uh, established and developed and, uh, you know, it's found that it is warranted in the case to go to the Supreme Court. Donald Trump doesn't have time for that. He just went straight to the Supremes. Number two, it was also dismissed on the merits of the case. On that, the Supremes, the Georgia Supremes wrote, quote, even if the petition were procedurally appropriate, petitioner has not shown that he would be entitled to the relief that he seeks. Uh, Going to the merits, uh, he says precedents cited by Trump's complaint apply to only regular grand juries. And even if a special grand jury does act improperly, that is not the basis, basis to quash its findings because a special grand jury is merely making recommendations that must still go through a regular grand jury in order to indict. There cannot be any infringement on a potential defendant's rights just because a special grand jury merely recommends 
that a regular grand jury do something or other. Got it? As for Trump's claim that uh, Willis must be disqualified as biased, well, the court states Trump has not presented, quote, either the facts or the law necessary to mandate Willis's disqualification. Again, he notes that seems pretty clear. By filing this action with the Supreme Court and getting this unanimous decision against him, Barber argues Trump has stupidly foreclosed any possibility that he might get a favorable favorable decision at the lower court level uh, because Willis now simply just has to cite the Supreme Court decision decided on the merits if Trump were to try to do that. Oopsie, that's a problem. Dumb move. So bad news for Donnie in the peach state for the moment. And according to a long, rambling, sort of sad and desperate statement posted to his social media account on Tuesday, it sounds like Trump is looking at very bad news today. On the federal level in Jack Smith's other probe, that's the probe of January 6th and related matters. Trump said Tuesday morning that he received a letter on Sunday from the Justice Department saying that he is, in fact, the target of the long-running investigation into efforts to overturn, as Washington Post calls it, in fact, to steal the 2020 presidential election. Quote, uh, nothing like this has ever happened in our country before or even close, Trump wrote in his long post on Tuesday in which he called Smith, quote, deranged and called Attorney General Merrick Garland's actions, quote, unethical. (laughs) Now, uh, true, nothing like this has ever happened in our country before because we've never had uh, an out and out criminal uh, as president before. But uh, to call, uh, you know, Merrick Garland's actions here unethical, this, this is a guy who ran for office in 2016 promising to have his own Department of Justice, if he was elected, lock up his main political rival for doing something, by the way, for mishandling classified documents in a, a way that Donald Trump has since blown away entirely in the uh, stolen do- in his own stolen documents case down in Mar-a-Lago. But anyway, he ran in 2016, promising to have his own Department of Justice lock up his main political rival at the time. And in the current campaign, the one in which he is still incredibly, for now, the front runner, for just a broken, corrupted, brain-poisoned Republican Party, apparently. Uh, In this campaign, Trump has promised that if he is elected a second time, he will order his DOJ to open a criminal investigation into his current rival. That would be President Joe Biden. For what? What would this criminal investigation be looking at? Who knows? Point is... There is nothing unethical about what Merrick Garland did in handing off this probe to an independent career prosecutor after Trump announced his 2024 candidacy. And Joe Biden has had nothing to do with any of these probes as he has gone out of his way to make clear. In fact, he has not even commented on any of them. A target letter from prosecutors 
means that investigators have now gathered substantial evidence linking the recipient to a crime. And yes, that is often a precursor to an indictment. But it does not necessarily mean the charges will ultimately be brought. Often these types of letters invite the target to appear before a grand jury to offer evidence to clear their name, as Trump claims is the case here. He claims he was uh, invited to speak to a grand jury if he wishes to appear this week before that grand jury. A Trump advisor said he does not plan to appear uh, or testify before that grand jury. Probably a good idea for him. That said, as long as if if we uh, take Trump at his word here, Uh, that that's what the letter says and that he's invited to talk to the grand jury this week. Presumably that means that Jack Smith will at least let the week complete before actually bringing indictments. But that's just me sort of reading the, the, the tea leaves here. Yeah, it seems like that might be a reasonable, plausible assumption that Thank they'll you. wait until after the period that they've granted him has give passed. Give him a week. Up until midnight or give 6 a.m. Yeah, he's not going to show up, but give him a week. You know, so they give him every benefit of the doubt. Yes. The uh, former president did not indicate what the actual charges against him could be. And it's unclear if the target letter actually specifies them. Trump did not share that letter for some odd reason. He just issued his own rambling claims about it. The target letter landed even as Smith's team continues to interview people who worked for Trump's team and others close to him. The DOJ has been examining the events that led up to the January 6, 2021 riot at the U.S. Capitol. Investigators have looked at the ads and the email messages that sought to fundraise off false claims of election fraud, uh, uh, falsely claiming that donations would go to a, a legal defense, an election uh, legal defense fund. That apparently did not actually exist. So that's just out and out wire fraud. And the decision by they've been looking into the decision by Republican electors in several states, won by Joe Biden to send signed statements purporting to be real electors. Uh, falsely affirming Donald Trump as the victor in their state. And on that note. I have to momentarily here break away from this breaking news to bring you later breaking news that broke just before airtime on this point. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel announced Tuesday that she has now filed state charges against 16 Michiganders who signed paperwork falsely claiming that President Donald Trump won the 2020 election as part of the scheme to overturn the results as NBC reports. These appear to be the first charges filed against fake electors. The 16 people being charged in Michigan allegedly met in the basement of the state's Republican Party headquarters where all legitimate electors apparently meet for a presidential election. In the basement of the Republican Party headquarters signed multiple certificates claiming they were, quote, the duly elected and qualified electors for vice for president and vice president of the United States of America for the state of Michigan. Nessel said, adding, quote, that was a lie. They weren't the duly elected and qualified electors and each of the defendants knew it, she says. Nessel said the false electors 
false electors are being charged with eight felony counts each, including forgery. So how do you like your former president now, kiddies? The 16 individuals include Michigan GOP co-chair Michonne Maddock and state Republican National Committee woman Kathy Burden. All right. So there's that breaking news in the middle of this other breaking news. Now back to our previously breaking news regarding Trump's target letter from Jack Smith. In addition to all of that, federal prosecutors in that case have also inquired with witnesses about Trump's pressure campaign on Vice President Mike Pence to overturn the election, as led at the time by uh, Trump attorneys Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman, both of whom are now facing disbarment processes in New York and D.C. for Giuliani and out here in California for Eastman. Both falsely argued that Pence could legally reject Biden's electors when Congress gathered to confirm his win. TPM notes the uh, faker electors scheme involved a coterie of attorneys for Trump purportedly directing GOP electors in seven states that Trump lost to cast their ballots anyway, as if he had won. The documents were then delivered to Congress by a guy named Mike Roman, the 2020 Trump campaign director of Election Day operations. Now, Roman is reportedly cooperating with the investigation uh, as of last month. That is not good news for Trump and friends. Mike Roman, it would seem, as the director of the campaign's Election Day operations, would know a lot of stuff. And if he's cooperating, in theory, he'll be sharing all that stuff with prosecutors. AP reports the prosecutors have questioned multiple Trump administration officials before a grand jury in Washington, including Vice President Mike Pence, who was repeatedly pressured by Trump to ignore his constitutional duty and block the counting of the electoral votes on January 6th. They've also interviewed other Trump advisors, including former Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani, as well as local election officials in states, including in Michigan uh, and New Mexico. Uh, who all who endured pressure from the then president about overturning election results in their states. Trump is the only person, however, so far to publicly say that he's received one of these target letters as part of the January 6th investigation. Uh, an attorney for Giuliani, Robert Costello, who would seem to be a natural target here, Giuliani, not Costello. <laughs> but his attorney, Costello, has said that the former New York City mayor has not received a target letter, which is interesting. In recent weeks, Giuliani, uh, who, who led the legal team through the efforts to block the win, agreed to speak with prosecutors under a proffer agreement where, in theory, Rudy tells them everything that he knows, and but they can't use that information uh, against him as they consider then whether to allow him to become a cooperating witness in some fashion. So... Malone, the campaign day election director, election day operation director. Mike Roman. Um, Mike Roman, thank you. Uh, Roman, he's said to be cooperating. And Giuliani, who was in the, 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 you know, he was in the thick of this thing, neck deep into this thing, supposedly 
he hasn't received a target letter either. It sounds to me like he may be cooperating now with Jack Smith's team, which, if so, is really bad news for Trump because Giuliani knows where a lot of the bodies are uh, buried, maybe even real ones. I don't know. <laughs> but a lawyer for Giuliani uh, you know, said that he did not receive a target letter here. Why would Trump get one but not Giuliani at this point? Well, that might be another plausible explanation. More tea leaves for you there. In his uh, post on Tuesday, uh, Trump wrote that, quote, they have now effectively indicted me three times. So it certainly sounds like they have made it clear in that letter that he didn't show us that they are going to indict him, as that would be the third indictment after the New York State indictment related to the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels to help him win the 2016 election and the federal stolen documents indictment filed in Florida with, uh, as Trump adds in his letter, quote, a probable fourth coming from Atlanta. And he added in all caps, so you know he means it. This witch hunt is all about election interference and a complete and total weaponization of law enforcement. Again, amusing, given his own attempts to do exactly that, to weaponize law enforcement as president previously. And, and, and his promise to do even more so if he's reelected. And and add to that, by the way, the terrifying report from The New York Times on Monday. We shared a little bit of that on yesterday's show that former Trump staffers are devising a plan for him or for any other Republican president to consolidate all power from all supposedly independent executive branch agencies like the Department of Justice, like the Federal Reserve, like the Federal Trade Commission, et cetera, et cetera combine, consolidate all of that power into the Oval Office under the direct control of the president, who would also seize power for himself to fire any and all career public officials at all of the executive agencies that were not loyal enough to the president as he sees it. And this is not a conspiracy theory. This is not something that I'm just uh, saying, oh, they're going to do this. Be very afraid. This is the plan that these people, including Trump, are publicly talking about. And if elected, they will then use the fact that they're talking about it. They presented this plan as a mandate to then execute that plan in what is nothing short of a full on autocratic takeover of the executive branch under a so-called unitary executive theory. They're saying they're going to do this. We ought to believe them. And that plan, remember, is not only for Trump, but for whichever Republican next wins the White House. I think I'm going to have to get into that. We didn't have enough time uh, yesterday or today, but at some point I'm going to have to get into more of those details so that you are properly terrified about what they are publicly promising to do when either Trump or the next Republican takes over the White House. Yes, so, it's basically the Putin oligarch model. It is. I mean, when, so when you hear me discussing, you know, democracy versus autocracy in the context of the 2024 election and in the context of Democrats versus Republicans, that is what I am talking about. That is not a partisan matter. That is simply a fact 
matter based on demonstrable evidence. The Democratic Party, love them or hate them, is currently pro-democracy. Whether that democracy is imperfect or not, that's a separate issue. But the Republican Party is now pro-authoritarianism, and they have both the plan and the candidate. Now their front-runner for the 2024 presidential nomination to prove it. Fox News uh, on Tuesday was collecting statements in response to Trump's announcement of his targeting letter from some of the other candidates in the 2024 presidential primary contest. His closest rival, Florida Governor, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, whose campaign now seems to be sinking like a stone, echoed the uh, claim of Trump and other Republicans about the politicization of federal institutions like the DOJ and the FBI, even as they called for the politicization of those institutions if they become president. And in DeSantis's case, where he has politicized his own state government from top to bottom, from you know healthcare to law enforcement to what words teachers may say and what books may be in their libraries, well, DeSantis said courageously about Trump's announcement, quote, I can't speak to that because I haven't seen it. <laughs> But he added, quote, I can tell you one of my jobs as president will be to end the weaponization of these agencies. Really? Will it, Ron? <sighs> Another candidate, former uh, South Carolina governor Nikki Haley, showed a bit more courage than DeSantis when she was asked about uh, about all of this on Fox News. Former President Donald Trump announced that he uh, has been notified as of Sunday night that he says he is the target of an indictment as it relates to January 6th. Your reaction to that and how does that affect the race? It's going to keep on going. I mean, the rest of this primary election is going to be in reference to Trump. It's going to be about lawsuits. It's going to be about legal fees. It's going to be about judges. And it's just going to continue to be a further and further um, distraction. And that's why I am running is because we need a new generational leader. We can't keep dealing with this drama. We can't keep dealing with the negativity. Very courageous. Former <laughs> Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson running as an anti-Trump candidate himself, so actually receiving almost zero support from Republican voters. He blasted Trump for the latest news. Quote, I have said from the beginning that Donald Trump's actions on January 6th should disqualify him from ever being president again. As a former federal prosecutor, I understand the severity of grand jury investigations, what it means to be targeted by such an investigation. While Donald Trump would like the American people to believe he is the victim in this situation, said Hutchinson, the truth is that the real victims of January 6th were our democracy, our rule of law, and those Capitol Police officers who worked va uh, valiantly to protect our Capitol. That was Asa Hutchinson, who served as a federal prosecutor himself before winning election to Congress and then serving in uh, President George W. Bush's administration. Hutchinson, in his statement, stressed that, quote, anyone who truly loves this country and is willing to put the country over themselves would suspend their campaign for president of the United States immediately. It is disappointing that Donald Trump refuses to do so. Disappointing, I would add, but not surprising. surprising. <laughs> yeah. Right now, uh, becoming president 
as I'm sure Trump sees at this point, is his only uh, his only escape hatch, hatch, his only way of avoiding actual accountability for all of these crimes. So, of course, he's not going to drop out unless he has to, unless something forces him to. But while Hutchinson refer, uh, referenced the, uh, the fact that January 6th should, quote, disqualify Trump, it was actually long long-shot GOP presidential candidate, multimillionaire Vivek Ramaswamy, who actually brought, well, the law and the Constitution to the matter in a way that we have spent quite a bit of time pointing out on this program, including for the bulk of yesterday's show. This is different from any of the other prior indictments against Trump. This one under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment could disqualify President Trump from either running for U.S. president or potentially even being removed as U.S. president if he is elected. I think this sets a dangerous precedent in our country. It's worth understanding the history here. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution says that anyone who's taken an oath to office, a congressman, a senator, or a president, can be removed from office or disqualified from running for office mm-hmm. if they've also engaged in an insurrection against the United States. So if it is held that President Trump did play a role in an insurrection against the U.S., that disqualifies him from being U.S. president under the 14th Amendment. Ding, ding, ding. There you go. That was not uh, a guest on the broadcast. That was not me. That was not someone from Free Speech for People. <laughs> that was Vivek Ramaswamy, a, uh, a, a long shot, but a GOP presidential candidate getting it right. Uh, so good. There you go. Someone over there on that side of the aisle, the aisle that pretends to give a damn about, you know, following in fact, revering the Constitution, someone over there has finally noticed what the U.S. Constitution actually says. And no, uh, Vivek, in fact, as we discussed yesterday, Trump does not actually have to either be indicted or convicted regarding January 6th in order for Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to disqualify him from the 2024 ballot. But it certainly won't hurt. So let's see when or if the rest of the candidates on the GOP side of the aisle and the rest of his party actually notices this. Or how many will end up just going to jail for him, like Walt Nauta in the uh, documents case, hundreds of insurrectionists in the January 6th investigation, and those dumb fake elector dupes up in Michigan before they all notice. Quick break and a quick story about others in the GOP not only ignoring the rule of law, but now sticking their thumb in the eye of the U.S. Supreme Court. And Desi Doyen's latest Green News report, where it's also a totally slow news day. (laughs) I'm Brad Friedman, and this is the Bradcast. Has Jack Smith got my sandwich yet? The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Make the world go 
get it off of my shoulder. That's actually for me, not for you. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman for Bradblog.com. Don't go away. That uh, segment ran long there. My apologies because of all the breaking news upon breaking news. So we've got just one quick one here before we get to Des and the GNR. It is not just the rule of law that the lawless Republican Party now believes they are free to completely ignore. Apparently, <laughs> they are now just ignoring the courts as well. Even the U.S. Supreme Court in, in Alabama, incredibly enough, not to mention how Ohio Republicans have already been ignoring their own state Supreme Court. Here's the story. Republican state legislators in Alabama advanced a new congressional map, new U.S. House districts on Monday with, wait for it, just one majority black district. Seemingly spitting in the eye of the U.S. Supreme Court, which had just last month sent that map back to the drawing board specifically to add a second majority black U.S. House district in the state. Where about 30 percent of the residents are black, but there is just one of the state's seven U.S. House districts that offer a black majority in violation of the Voting Rights Act as found by the stolen right-wing corrupt U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, it was so bad that even the stolen, packed right-wing supermajority on the Supreme Court yep. found it to be unconstitutional. You, uh, and not only that, but the J- Chief Justice John Roberts wrote for the court's majority uh, here in, in this case, saying, quote, any remedial plan will need to include two districts in which black voters either compromise, either comprise a voting age majority or something quite close to it. That was John Roberts in in for the majority uh, opinion in this surprising pro-democracy decision from this right wing court that shocked experts when it was issued just weeks ago. And here's Alabama telling him to shove off. There you go. <laughs> Alabama lawmakers have been trying to get away with an older iteration of the map that had only one majority black district. Those challenging it, who won in the court's June decision, demanded two, which is commensurate with the voting population of black Alabamians. Alabama's Democratic state rep, Chris England, shared the new map and its demographic breakdown on Twitter. One district on the map is 53 percent black. And 43% white. The next largest black population share in a district is only 44% as compared to 52% white. All of the Democrats on the committee opposed the new map. It'll go to the full legislature this week, so we'll be watching what happens. But Alabama may be following in the footsteps of Ohio as TPM's Kate Riga argues, where Republican legislators flatly refused to follow that state's Supreme Court order to redraw their own maps last year. They instead pursued legal appeals, including to the U.S. Supreme Court. Some expect that appeal to be rejected and for remapping to begin in Ohio this summer. But we will see at this point. And even if the challenge is Rejected by the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. Will Ohio Republicans simply reject the U.S. Supreme Court? 
as Alabama lawmakers are attempting to do. That sort of seems where we pretty much almost are at this point in this nation. It's remarkable. At least on the Republican side of the aisle, where the rule of law apparently does not matter, and now even the courts don't matter. This is not a good thing. The Alabama lawmakers are even are being even bolder than they were in Ohio to date, uh, contradicting a direct opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court. There is already a preset federal district court hearing on August 14 to review the map's compliance with the Voting Rights Act, the law under which Alabama's previous map was challenged. Alabama's Republican governor, Kay Ivey, said, quote, it is critical that Alabama be fairly and accurately represented in Washington. That's what she said as she called the legislature back for a special session to draw up new maps after the SCOTUS ruling. She said, quote, our legislature knows our state better than the federal courts do. What does that mean exactly? Is she is she going to be challenging federal courts? In fact, the U.S. Supreme Court with a map like this, it sort of sounds like it at this point. In ruling against Alabama officials earlier this summer, the Supreme Court sustained one of the last remaining powers of the Voting Rights Act. It ensured that vote dilution cases, lawsuits where plaintiffs try to prove that states have gerrymandered districts to weaken minority voters by either cracking them into multiple districts or packing them into one single district, the uh, Supreme Court shocked all of us by saying, yeah, those cases can still be brought to the federal court. The Roberts Court is otherwise known for hobbling the Voting Rights Act any way they can and for making it uh, harder to bring cases challenging discriminatory voting laws. The Alabama decision at SCOTUS with Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh joining the liberals happily stunned nearly all of us in the voting rights world, particularly given Robert's long opposition to voting rights and to the Voting Rights Act. And now he may be finding that Republicans are simply going to ignore his own rulings. Incredible. We will be watching. Green News Report is next. I'm Brad, and this is the Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is supporting you and the things that you care about. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. Right now, as much as ever. If you choose to support us, you can do it really easily, safely, and quickly via bradblog.com donate. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Well, that was exhausting. <laughs> uh, it was a lot of news. Uh, it was a lot of news. A uh, ten-pound news show and a one-pound bag, or something like that. Uh, so I'm ready. I'm I'm ready to sit back and and relax and let you take over. Are you ready? <laughs> yes. All right. Let's get to it. Our latest green news report. We're seeing basically the the manifestation of decades of inaction. Extreme heat and floods strike simultaneously across the northern hemisphere. 
Corporate TV news mostly ignores climate change in extreme weather coverage. Plus, crushing insurance increases now facing Florida homeowners before hurricane season even enters its peak. Another major insurer ditches Florida in the middle of hurricane season. All of that bad news for Florida and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comments. The governor responding to those concerns today about this insurance crisis with what really sounded like a wish upon a star moment. Did that reporter just use Disney to punch Ron DeSantis in the face? Why, yes, he did. Knock on wood, we won't have a big storm uh, this summer. Knock on wood? This isn't what we should be hearing from our leaders. Nope, but it's what you're hearing from Ron DeSantis. Knock on wood, this is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Dorian, Ron DeSantis is wishing upon a star that there'll be no storms at all down in Florida this year. I'm sure it'll all work out well for him, right? Uh, yeah, good luck with that. The summer of extremes is still underway. The hottest June on record has been followed by 10 of the hottest days in history in July, with forecasters predicting that 2023 will probably be the hottest year in history. Probably. Since records began in the 1850s. Simultaneous heat waves across the northern hemisphere are suffocating the U.S. and parts of Europe and Asia. Concurrent heat waves have increased nearly six-fold in frequency since just the 1980s. Over the weekend, China hit 126 degrees Fahrenheit, a new all-time high national record. Parts of southern Europe are struggling with temperatures approaching 120 degrees. It's so hot... How hot is it? ...that Tour de France cyclists must wear ice vests to prevent heat stress. The Italian government is warning people to stay out of direct sunlight at the height of tourism season. Parts of the U.S. southwest, like El Paso, are marking a full month of temperatures above 100 degrees. As we go to air, Phoenix just tied its record for 18 consecutive days of 110 degree temperatures or higher with no end in sight. Good Lord. The surge of heat energy is also turbocharging new extreme storms and flash floods in In South Korea, flooding from a month of relentless rains has killed at least 37 people, including motorists trapped in a tunnel by fast-rising floodwaters over the weekend. In the northeastern U.S., sudden extreme cloudbursts triggered new deadly flash floods in North Carolina and in Pennsylvania. This summer of extremes is showing that efforts to adapt are not keeping pace with even the relatively modest levels of human-caused global warming so far. Humanity's use of fossil fuels has warmed the planet 1.2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial times. While computer models accurately predicted the breakneck pace of temperature records we're seeing today, climate scientist Dr. Michael Mann on MSNBC warned that the computer models underestimated some key impacts, like the extent of heat waves and floods. We're watching our predictions come true. And, and usually as a scientist, you want to see your predictions come true. But as a climate scientist, you don't. But some of the impacts 
are exceeding what we predicted. And, and one of those areas is extreme weather events. Many of these extreme weather events are more extreme and more prevalent, uh, more damaging than we expected at this point. However, on most of the major TV news networks, only about 10 percent of the coverage of the catastrophic flooding across the Northeast recently mentioned the role of climate change, according to Media Matters. During the analysis period, Fox News mentioned climate change only once to deny its role in the Vermont floods. Who could have guessed it? The researchers say that failure to connect the dots undermines public understanding of how fossil fuel-driven global warming intensifies extreme weather and the urgency of implementing solutions. In other news, yet another major insurer has joined the exodus from Florida. Right in the middle of Atlantic hurricane season, AAA announced it will not renew home and car insurance for some policyholders in Florida, citing increased disaster risk exposure and the skyrocketing costs of reconstruction. It is the fifth major insurer to exit the state. Well, knock on wood, everything I'm sure will be fine. FEMA announced its disaster relief fund could run dry at the peak of hurricane season unless Congress shores up funding. Knock on wood, we won't have a big storm uh, this summer. And finally, great news in Brazil's Amazon rainforest. After four years of rising destruction, new satellite data confirms that deforestation has dropped in the rainforest by more than a third during the first six months of new President Lula's term. Well, knock on wood, at least there'll be wood to knock on down in Brazil. (laughs) For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. We do have an update on Phoenix. You know, they had uh, tied their record for the most consecutive days, over 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, they've now broken that, and there's no sign of that heat wave ending now. Way to go, Phoenix. We'll probably break it again. Congratulations. Uh, I think that's going to continue for a while. Yeah. All right, we got to get out. Knock on wood. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always an honor and greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. There is no paywall there. Why? Because of those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on the air 100% listener and reader supported. Thank you. Drop me email if you like. I am Bradcast at Bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons, I am the Bradblog. I'll see you there until we see you here next time. Hopefully tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1969. That was the day hospital workers in Charleston, South Carolina, won union recognition. 
the 113-day strike reflected all the broader social issues of the day. Led primarily by black women, the strike at the medical college, Charleston County, and several other hospitals intersected civil rights and racial and gender discrimination on the job. Jewel Charmaine Debnam notes that women like local 1199B President Mary Moultrie, Naomi Watts, and others were essential to the strike not only as daily participants on the picket line, but also as leaders of the local movement establishment. For months, strikers marched, walked picket lines, clashed with police, and held vigils demanding their right to organize. They defied injunctions and endured hundreds of arrests, nightly curfews, and confrontations with state National Guard. Governor McNair and the hospital boards had initially refused to concede to the workers' demands for union recognition. They claimed workers paid with public funds could not engage in collective bargaining. But the women were steadfast. They pointed to the wage disparities between black and white workers and between male and female workers. They also protested the blatant disrespect and discrimination meted out daily by management. Local longshoremen stood in solidarity with the strikers and threatened a walkout in support if their demands were not met. Coretta Scott King and many other civil rights leaders also played a supportive role. Finally, the union won reinstatement of fired workers, which had touched off the strike. They also won a solid grievance procedure, a minimum wage, and access to a credit union. Victory would be short-lived, however, when the state almost immediately refused to hold up its end of the agreement. Labor History in 2 brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show.